Open, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we're not going to do it um, one verse a week, and I'm going to prove this two weeks in a row. I'm going to read, uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Father, I pray that that you would give us what we need today, Lord. I pray that you would feed us from your word. Help us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In some respects, the church has always been under some sort of threat. Um, It has faced attacks really from uh, throughout history from three perpetual sources. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Or to put it another way, there are external forces, internal forces, and spiritual forces. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 reminds us of this truth when Paul says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. From its very beginnings, the church has been under threat. Initially, the church was threatened by the Jewish Sanhedrin, their court. They viewed Christianity as this radical sect of Judaism, and and they strictly prohibited the the Jewish apostles of Jesus from preaching the Christian message. Acts chapter 4 says this, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And then a few verses later it says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Christianity has has long faced opposition and threats, especially early on from those Jewish forces as it spread around the Roman Empire. And yet the apostles kept appealing to their Jewish countrymen to accept Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah, the one written about by the prophets. As we saw a few weeks ago, one of the greatest 
Initial sources of persecution against the Christians came from a man who would very soon become Christianity's greatest spokesman, a young Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul's conversion to Christianity has long been a great encouragement to Christians down through the ages. It has been a source of encouragement to pray for those who persecute them, as Jesus had taught in Matthew chapter 5. The book of Acts closes with Paul the prisoner preaching the gospel in the city of Rome, awaiting a hearing before Caesar himself. It's believed that sometime around A.D. 64, the Roman emperor, or Caesar, Nero, oversaw the executions of both Peter and Paul. He then went on to orchestrate what was really all throughout history one of the bloodiest persecutions the church has ever had to endure. Hundreds of thousands of believers were brutally martyred during a three and a half year tribulation. But before the apostle Paul was martyred, before he was put to death, he warned the Ephesian elders about a fierce, a danger of fierce wolves coming from within their church. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that phrase, twisted things, it begins with a distortion of biblical doctrine. And it's usually done to, frankly, it's usually done to justify some sort of unbiblical conduct, often involving some sort of immoral practice. Jesus himself, in Revelation chapter 2, rebuked the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira for allowing such twisted doctrine to infiltrate their assemblies. The early church faced internal threats from the Judaizers who attempted to blend Judaism with Christianity. It faced internal threats from the Gnostics, Gnosticism, which is basically a belief in mind over matter. It's on the rise today, by the way, Gnosticism is. The Gnostics believed that they had a secret knowledge that only a select few could know, including that the material world, they believed, was evil, and therefore Jesus did not really come in the flesh. But the church also faced threats from charlatans who attempted to take financial advantage of Christians. This has continued to be a problem all through the church age, even up to today. The church has always faced dangers and threats from the world, the flesh, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The church is always going to be in danger when it compromises God's word or when it neglects the place of prayer. These dangers will spill down to the application of Scripture, especially considering the, uh, the spiritual and, and character requirements for the church's leaders, for her pastors, elders, deacons. History shows us that when church leaders were appointed who were not biblically qualified, or in some cases even spiritually regenerate, they weren't even believers, history shows us that the church becomes corrupted at that point. We're seeing this today in churches all over the world. 
Churches have abandoned the Bible's plain teaching on marriage and sexuality, on the roles of men and women in the church, on on conversion and discipleship. The list goes on and on and on. And I would submit to you that there is another threat that the church faces. This is also a threat from within, a threat from the flesh, and it's a threat to fellowship. But before we, can, before we can get into this threat to fellowship that we see in today's passage, we need to understand another concept that really serves as the foundation for fellowship. And this is, this is the idea of reconciliation. Reconciliation. When I began our study of 1 Corinthians, I asked you uh, to consider this question. What does the gospel do to a church? Not what does it do to us individually. Yes, we will uh, constantly be wrestling with that question. But what does the gospel do to a local assembly of believers? One of those answers is found in this theological concept of reconciliation. And so in his follow-up letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul will explain reconciliation like this. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, Paul continues, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As Christians, we have been made new creations. The debt of our sin has been reconciled. It has been paid in full. It has been, the, the ledger has been cleared. And so he no longer counts our trespasses, our sins against us. But he in fact entrusts us with this, this message of reconciliation, the gospel. Furthermore, This ministry of reconciliation ought also to affect our relationships with one another. The Apostle John says it like this in in his first letter. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Then in verse 23, he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Of course, we remember that that John is really just expanding on what Jesus taught us back in chapter 13 of the gospel according to John. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, Christ has loved us 
And yet our response is not always to love one another, right? At least not immediately. But it ought to be. And Christ himself has to state that this is a command. It's an imperative of the gospel. It's a command of Jesus Christ himself. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's a command. So this brings us, finally, to this next section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians here. They're beginning to quarrel. The church is beginning to quarrel. They're not doing well at following Christ's command at loving one another. Now remember, he's already laid a foundation for church unity in his opening greeting. Really, it's especially in verse 2. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2 especially. So now he begins to address this idea of unity specifically. And he's, gonna, he, uh, he's going to continue to address specific issues uh, that relate to this throughout the letter. But I want to read this passage again, but this time I'm going to start with verse 9. Because in order to understand this threat to the fellowship... Not only do we have to understand that Christ has reconciled us to himself and given us a ministry of reconciliation, called us to love one another, but we also understand that we have been reconciled into fellowship with Jesus. So so let's read this again, beginning in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." In the New Testament, which was originally written mostly in Greek, um, there are a few words, Greek words, that you, you ought to know. You don't have to know too many, but there are a few that are helpful. One of those is the word for fellowship, which is koinonia. Probably you've heard this before. And the simplest translation of the Greek word koinonia is actually Common union. Common union. Obviously, now we have abbreviated this to communion. On one level, this common union, this koinonia, means that we get to to share a common meal together with with one another when we come to the Lord's table. That's why we call it communion sometimes. Think of the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the koinonia, the common union, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Jude called these meals love feasts. Um, Actually, Jude 
says that they called them love feasts. This is the common name. John teaches us that this is a meal, really, that, that points to a greater meal. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9, speaking of all of this, we read this. Then I heard to be uh, what seemed to be a, the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to me, these words are true, the true words of God. So when we come to the common union table as part of our worship service, It's a foretaste of the feast that we will participate in with Christ one day in glory. And yet on another level, this idea of koinonia, fellowship, common union, it isn't about church potluck lunches, right? We understand that. It signifies the status of being in Christ, being in common union with Christ, of being shareholders in a, in a sonship that's derived from the sonship of Christ. He has given us the right to be called children of God. And this is a common union that we have together with our God. And so koinonia with Christ creates koinonia with the other Christians. In fact, in chapter 10, he's going to specifically address this idea, and and Paul is going to rule out any any idea of a a common union with idols. We'll get there someday. But let's get back to this threat, because there's a threat to their koinonia with one another. There's a threat to their fellowship. There's a threat to their common union. Instead of uniting, they're dividing up the body of Christ into competing cliques. And so Paul moves from his greeting of thankfulness for what God has done and what God continues to do in and for the Corinthians. And he moves to issue a plea for true unity. This is one of the themes that will come up again and again and again throughout this letter this plea for true unity. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Right from the outset, Paul gives a a firm yet loving exhortation. He says, I appeal to you. Some versions say, I urge you. I firmly encourage you. Now, when dad... When dad firmly encourages you to do something, you probably ought to do it, right? Right, kids? When dad firmly encourages you to do something, you probably ought to do it. That's the idea here. Paul has already reminded them that he is an apostle, which means that Paul writes with the authority of Christ himself. 
And he does so in a way that encourages and builds up the church. He calls them brothers, or or I like the older versions that say brethren, because it's for all of them, not just the men. But notice that he's not appealing to his own authority, but rather to the name of their Lord. It's in his name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he pleads with them. In other words, he's saying, this is what Jesus Christ wants. If he were standing here with us, he would say the same thing to you, Paul is saying to them. And we know this because of what Jesus prayed. Remember his high priestly prayer in John 17, in verses 20 and 21, Jesus prayed this, I do not ask for these only, the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus was praying for the, for the fellowship, for the common union of the church, that they may all be one. And here, Paul, especially in verse 10, he's actually encouraging three things. First of all, he is encouraging agreement. Notice what he says, that all of you agree. Or more literally translated, it's actually speak the same. That you speak the same. The importance of agreement on the most important doctrines is critical in any church. But especially in a culture that puts such an emphasis on lofty speech and wisdom. Look across at chapter 2, just the first couple of verses. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In our society today, uh, modern America, um, I don't know that we really put this much emphasis on lofty speech and wisdom, especially as the Greeks did as he's writing this. Probably we put more emphasis on things like inclusiveness, non-judgmentalism. But this is the idea. Throughout this letter, Paul is continuing to point them back to the gospel. He's continuing to point them back to the gospel. In this passage, today it's verse 17. I'm not coming to you as the Greeks do, as the world does with lofty speech and wisdom. I'm not pleading with you with the idea of inclusiveness. We're talking about unity. True, genuine unity. The world isn't concerned with true, genuine unity. Just with... You know what we mean by inclusiveness, and I probably don't have to go any further down that road. The Corinthians have been quarreling and dividing up, and it's become serious. And so he calls for there to be no divisions. That's the second thing he says. First of all, they're to agree, they're to speak the same. And then he says that there be no divisions among you. Literally, this is a schism or a split. There is developing among them at the church of Corinth a split. And it's probably splitting in four different ways. But as you can see from verse 12, and we'll get there in a minute, it's not over doctrine. It's over who they follow, whose teaching they prefer. 
There, there are not doctrinal divides or heresies that have developed in Corinth, which does happen, for example, in uh, the churches of Galatia. Paul will rebuke the Galatians by saying to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's not the issue here with the Corinthians. Here, Paul is simply just urging them towards unity, to be in agreement, and that there be no division among them. And then he goes on to call them to be united in the same mind and the same judgment, or perfectly joined together, the King James puts it. This is actually a, a call for them to be restored. I, I'm always amazed, this happened last week too, um, Ben talks about restoration, talked about restoration in Sunday school, being restored to Christ. This is what he's saying here. This is the Lord working even in our church. A call for them to be restored, like an old car or an old house, to be remade better than new with the same mind. Because as he will say in chapter 2, verse 16, as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Now remember, we're still on verse 10, but verse 10 is really kind of his thesis, or it's the the theme of the next several chapters as as Paul will address unity on several different issues. Yet, Yet this issue here in verse 10 is also specific because look at verses 11 and 12 again. Verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul has received news of their quarreling from Chloe's people. We don't know anything about Chloe or her people. Um, We can assume that she was some kind of merchant, had employees or servants, maybe their family members. She is probably known to the Corinthians because he names her. But what is noteworthy is the report that they bring. They're quarreling. Sometimes this is translated as conflicts. In other places in Scripture, it's called strife. He will write in Romans 1.29 that this idea of quarreling or strife is a characteristic of those who have rejected God. So this is no small matter that he's writing to them about. They're acting just like the world. So they must be restored to Christ-likeness if the church at Corinth is going to survive. I mentioned this just a couple minutes ago, but verse 12 tells us that their quarrels were not over doctrine. These four men in verse 12 had the same teaching. They all preached the same message of repentance and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul himself, he will tell us later, planted the church at Corinth. Apollos came along after that and apparently pastored the church. Paul will say, I planted, Apollos watered. But even before those two, there's Cephas, that's Peter. Peter was the original leader of the twelve. And then, of course, you could see how some of them would say, as they were arguing over their favorite preacher, as some of them will say, well, I follow Christ. You can just hear and read the pride in this. So if you consider 
for just a moment, Jesus as rabbi, as, as teacher, good teacher, you could see who each of these leaders, or how each of these leaders would have disciples. They would have those who followed them, followed their teaching, read all the books that they wrote, listened to all of the podcasts that they published. They didn't publish any, but you know what I mean. It seems that what's happening here is the church is quarreling over their favorite celebrity preacher. All of them are faithful, by the way. We do this all the time. All of the Christians in reality, all of the Christians at Corinth were influenced by these preachers, just as we are. That's clearly not the problem. Influence isn't the problem. Paul's not the problem. Peter's not the problem. Apollos isn't the problem. Certainly, Christ isn't the problem. The problem is in the division. The problem is, is in their quarreling. You can almost hear that pride. Well, I don't follow any of those guys. I follow Christ. And so Paul addresses this problem by calling them to remember into whom they were baptized. And he does so in a, in a sarcastic way. This is what is called sanctified sarcasm. Listen to verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that they were baptized into my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul sees this idea of having celebrity preachers, especially from among these guys, as being completely ridiculous, and yet here they are. Is Christ divided? Of course not. What does that even mean? Is Christ divided? But his people are dividing. Paul is hitting them hard with these, these kind of absurd, sarcastic questions in order to demonstrate the absurdity of their divisions. This, this is an apostolic knock it off. That's what Paul is doing to them. He's using his apostolic authority and saying, knock it off. Verses 14 to 16, in, in my view, this is just an aside. Verses 14, 15, and 16 are, are some of the funniest uh, lines that Paul ever wrote. Verse 16 in particular is like Paul remembering mid-thought as he's, he's probably dictating this to Sosthenes who's writing it down. And Paul remembers, well, I, I did also baptize the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anybody else or not. Because that's not the point. The point isn't the person doing the baptizing. The point is the baptism itself and into whose name they were baptized. What he's really doing is pushing them to remember the name into which they were baptized. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, Article 29, says about baptism. This is paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance or a command of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection. 
of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And then paragraph two says, those who personally profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. In other words, we believe that baptism is a command of Christ to be obeyed by all who are in koinonia, in fellowship, in common union with him. It's a sign of their salvation. It's an outward expression of their inward faith that they've been given a new heart. Baptism is something that ought to be remembered because in it, in baptism, you have publicly sworn allegiance to him as he has raised you from the dead. In these verses, Paul is saying, it isn't about me. I think he's especially rebuking the the I follow Paul crowd. But the others are in this as well. This isn't about celebrity preachers. This isn't about being prideful that, well, I follow Christ. This is about dying to self. This is about being raised to walk in newness of life, life in Christ, being raised by Christ. This is about being united to Christ and therefore with his church. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is about unity and fellowship. This is about koinonia. This is about that common union with Christ and with one another. This is about the power of the cross. Look at verse 17 now. The power of the cross. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Christianity isn't about the preacher. Christianity isn't about Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, Peter, or any other celebrity or non-celebrity. Christianity is really all about Christ. It is all about his work on the cross. This doesn't mean that baptism was neglected by Paul, by the way. Clearly, he baptized some and didn't even remember everybody that he baptized. It means that the heart of the gospel is the message of the cross, Now, Paul is going to continue to develop this thought in the next section, and we will get there next week, Lord willing. But for now, look back over these verses that we've covered so far. How many times is Jesus mentioned? How many times is Christ mentioned in the first 17 verses of chapter 1? It's Christ who calls. It's Christ who sanctifies. It's Christ who brings grace and peace. It's Christ who enriches. It's Christ who sustains us to the end. It's Christ that we are brought into koinonia, fellowship with. It was Christ who went to the cross, bearing all of our sin and shame. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. The power of the cross is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The power of the cross is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, uh, two or three, um, I was asked to go and meet with someone that there was some sort of satanic, demonic activity, maybe something strange happening in her mind. And I was a little bit nervous about that. I don't know what I think about demonic possession in this day and age, but that was what was said was the problem. And so I did what every youngish pastor, I like to think I'm youngish, I called an older guy and asked him for help. What do I do? And Tim said, I'm not going to tell you who it was. He said, well, just remember Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To the Jew first, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. power of the cross is this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just this last year, I I met with that person one time a couple years ago, never heard anything else again, and just this last year that person was baptized into a church The power of the cross is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That had nothing to do with me, by the way. I just planted or watered or whatever. I just shared the gospel. It was God who changed. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the power of the cross, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that we would be united, that we would not quarrel. I'm thankful that we're a church that is united, that stands firm on the truth of your word, that stands firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we know that it would be easy. It would be easy to put our own uh, wants and desires ahead of everybody else's. It would be easy to put our own preferences over simple things ahead of everybody else's, whether it's a popular preacher or Simple things like chair color and carpet color or whatever, Lord. 
It would be easy to put our own preferences and to be quarreling and to divide. But you have called us into fellowship with your Son. You have called us into common union with Jesus Christ. And so we stand together at the cross. We stand together, Lord. We come to the table together in common union as those who have been called into fellowship with your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we come to the table to proclaim Jesus' death, we come, Lord, remembering the power of the gospel, that you are mighty to save, that for any who would call upon your name would be saved. And so, Father, we pray that you would remind us of the power of Jesus Christ. Remind us as we eat and drink. Remind us as we pray. Remind us as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.